Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke with the historian Niall Ferguson. We spoke to him via Skype, so please excuse any lapse in audio quality, but he was very honest and open about his move from academia um, to sort of writing more mainstream work, and also about the pressures, financial pressures that he has faced. Uh, it's a great episode and we hope you enjoy it. So we'll sort of dive right in. We wanted to sort of ask you about your um, background and kind of how you um, became interested in your sort of principal areas that you've, you've gone on to write about. I was born in the great city of Glasgow in 1964 and I'm a product of the, uh, the west of Scotland bourgeoisie. My father was a doctor, my mother taught physics my sister is in fact a physicist, but I was the black sheep of the family and gravitated towards literature. I think I was leaning in the direction of English literature as a teenager and then I read War and Peace when I was about 15 and at the end of War and Peace there's this wonderful appendix or coda in which Tolstoy reflects on the philosophy of history as if to say... Why on earth did all of these extraordinary things happen to the characters in the novel? And he makes that argument that it's not about individual agency, right? Correct. And argues that there is essentially a deterministic uh, process at work and humans only have the illusion of free will. He also asks the great question, what is the power that moves nations? And I thought that was the most interesting question I'd come across. So at that point, I think I decided on history... I knew I wanted to write for a living from a relatively early age, but it wasn't clear quite how that would work until I got to Oxford and realised that there were people who who actually got paid to sit in book-blind studies talking about books and occasionally writing them. So I became an academic, as it seemed like a good idea to have at least some steady income. But the plan was to be a writer. I couldn't really write fiction. I failed at that. and so I And so I write history. So did you sort of have some attempts at, at writing fiction before you sort of went into academia wholesale? Oh, yes, I tried everything. I wrote a, a novel, at least one, an illustrated uh, cartoon strip, a couple of plays, many songs. <laughs> I don't think there's a genre I didn't have a stab at. I really did test out the, the, the various models I could drive and the only one that I actually could drive was was history. And how did you walk that line between the academy and, and you know doing doing your own work, both, you know, when you were making your initial forays, I suppose, into into general interest books, but also in your career subsequently. I mean this is something that's come up when we spoke to to Max Hastings and Anthony Beaver and also to Peter Frankopan about how you know how that boundary between I suppose popular history is the wrong word, but but, you know, uh, academic history and non-academic history. How have you walked that line? I think there's nothing wrong with popular history. It's not a term of abuse where I come from. But I think it's probably the wrong image to, to speak about walking a line. I had to lead a double life when I was a young academic because the snobbery in academia is so great that if you're seen to write uh, popularly, for example, in the newspaper, it can hurt your career. So for years, 
until my position at Oxford was secure, I used pseudonym or actually multiple pseudonyms to write for the Daily Telegraph. Actually, I wrote for the Telegraph when Max Hastings edited it. Okay. And for a long time, I didn't write as Neil Ferguson. I also wrote for the Daily Mail, I'm ashamed to admit, uh, but I needed the money and they paid pretty well. I was Alec Campbell. Uh, I wrote a column for Punch in the days when it was still read uh, under the name F.F. Gillespie. I've always been... Uh, I've always been relatively prolific. I find journalism has made me a better writer. The great French novelist Zola said that his prose style had been forged on the anvil of, of journalism, and I, I'd like to think so has mine. Most academics who don't write uh, for the press never have the discipline imposed on them that was imposed on me by hard-nosed veteran editors like the great Gordon McKenzie at the Mail, who, who like all great editors, would just tell you when it was no good and force you to write things multiple times. That was also true at the Telegraph. The deputy editor there, Trevor Grove, I remember making me write a piece about Germany. This is back in the mid-'80s when I was really very junior. Five times. It went through five different drafts before he would even consider publishing it. And so you, you get a real discipline from the, the Fleet Street professionals, which is not imposed in academic life, uh, or, re or, or very rarely. So I led that, that double life. At the same time, I would be writing academic articles for uh, referee journals, I wrote quite a lot of those. I wrote my first book, which was essentially the book of my doctoral thesis uh, for Cambridge University Press, who published it. And it wasn't, for me, too difficult to, to walk two lines. I would spend some of the week in, in Oxford or Cambridge and some of the week in London. I would write terribly Teutonic scholarly works with multiple footnotes in the morning and then dash off a thousand words for the street of shame in the afternoon. That was how I, how I lived. And I think if I had tried to combine those two lives, those two lines too early would have been very damaging for me as it was a, a frenemy at, at all souls blew my cover, uh, at some point, exactly when I forget. And, and, and I remember the feeling of panic when, when he did that, but it turned out I'd, I'd got far enough to survive the ghastly revelation that I wrote for for the Tory press, the pro-Thatcher press. These days, it would be fatal. But there was, there was still, in those days, a belief, certainly at Oxford and Cambridge, that there could be a few conservative dons, that they would be sort of tolerated. That, that's no longer true. Now, now it's... Certainly in, in the American universities, it's, it's verboten. We're going to come back a bit more to kind of your um, political writing, but we're always really curious about pe what people's work lives um, look like. And you've, you've spoken about kind of having your cover blown and having initially walked um, those two lines. You're, you're still sort of writing um, prolifically. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about, about you know, how you structure your work and um, your use of research assistants and, and um, the kind of 
the different channels under under which you produce um, writing. Well, I know there are some people who imagine a, a kind of Wagnerian Nibelheim in which I, as Alberich, uh, tyrannise hundreds of, of slave research assistants uh, who do all the work. In reality, I, uh, I really don't rely very heavily on assistance and not at all for writing. Mm. There are academics who have research assistants do the writing for them. To me, that's completely unfathomable. I'm far too snobbish about prose and far too pedantic to let anybody else near the writing process. So research assistants have been uh, people who, and this goes back 20 years, have generally been my students and as a kind of part-time holiday gig have helped me gather material. Where research assistants are very helpful is in going to archives when you're too busy teaching to go, going to libraries and delving into historiographies, making sure that you've got everything. When you're teaching, and I used to teach at one time 20 hours a week, you need somebody to be your your person in, in the archives and somebody to be your, your person in the in the libraries so that you, you cut out all that time of going and searching and, and digging. You do that at the beginning of your career. But once you've done it for a few projects, you, you realize that it's not actually a skill unique to you. In fact, I've had researchers better at me, than me at digging in, in archives. So... For the last 20 years, I've tended to, on any book project to have one person who's very crucial to the gathering of material. For example, Kissinger Volume 1, which was published a couple of years ago, uh, was possible because a man named Jason Rocket would go to every conceivable archive where there might be material relating to Kissinger's early life while I was teaching at Harvard. But when it comes to writing, I'll sit there with all the material that they've accumulated and plow through it and then and then write. And there's just no way of delegating that process because you have to read the material and you have to process it and you have to then translate it into coherent prose. And what I don't have anything other than a work life. You asked about uh, work life. That implies that there's some other life that I lead, but I work all the time. I think about work all the time. And uh, and that may be a, a kind of curse, but that's how I am. And what has been the role of, of America and of American institutions in, in your development as a writer? Did you make a very conscious choice that you wanted to, to base yourself in the American academic firmament, or did it, did it come about by happenstance? It wasn't the original plan. When I first got to Oxford, I fell in love with it and thought there could be no higher calling than to be an Oxford Don, and, or for that matter, a Cambridge Don. In some ways, I enjoyed Cambridge slightly more when I got there. I think I might very well still be there had it not been for personal circumstances, uh, marriage and, and children, which created some financial pressure. One started to see the limits of 
the Oxbridge Don's life. Um, I think it was when the entire after-tax income I was earning from teaching went straight to the nanny. That was when I realised I had to do a bit more. But the second thing that changed my my career path was publishing the House of Rothschild, the, the history of the, the Rothschild banks. And it was extraordinary how much more interest there was in that book in the United States than there was in the United Kingdom. It, it was just far more interesting in New York than in, in London. And I was invited to give papers at numerous universities in the United States in the late 90s. And so it suddenly hit me that the intellectual action in the fields that I was interested in, particularly financial history, but also, let me put it more broadly, geopolitical history, had moved. It was no longer at Oxford and Cambridge. It was now at Harvard, at Yale, at, at Stanford, and, 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 and at Princeton. So I, I took it into my head in around about, I don't know, 2000 or thereabouts, that I should consider moving and began doing what Americans call job talks. And then a couple of things happened that, that speeded up my decision-making. The first was I made a television series about the British Empire for Channel 4 and for the first time in what felt like decades got out of the, the bubble of, of Oxbridge life, that, that bubble that sort of extends from Oxford and Cambridge to Tuscany uh, by, by way of the south of France. I suddenly was in Africa. I was, I was in India. I was filming all over the world. And that really shook me up and, and made me realize that I'd been going very stale. Uh, the second thing that happened was 9-11. I was due to give a lecture in New York on 9-12, the day after the terrorist attacks. Of course, I, I never gave it because I couldn't fly. And in any case, I'd been due to give it very close to, to ground zero. And I'm enough of a uh, fighter temperamentally, I think this must be the Scottish uh, DNA, to respond to that attack by saying, right, I'm definitely going, and I'm going to New York. And very shortly after that, I accepted an offer from New York University because I just thought, bugger those people. You've spoken a little bit already about the kind of financial um pressures uh, that you kind of faced as an Oxford Don and, and the limits of the, of the pay that you could expect as an academic. Would you mind telling us a little bit more about the about how you organise your financial life as a writer and kind of how you, um, you know, where, where your, you, your, your income comes from? Well, I was brought up not to talk too much about money. Uh, as a general rule, uh, you should only ever talk about your straightened circumstances in in polite company at least it's, in some, it's something in, we, we ask States. we ask everyone this we should say it's not we're not selecting you for special treatment very implied in in the united states people love boasting about money but in england it's considered tremendously vulgar i have never been interested in uh making money but i've been forced into it by uh how can i put this 
dependence. And once you start uh, asking the question, how the hell can I pay this tax bill? You, you get creative. My way of, of solving what was a pretty intense financial problem in the 90s when I had, by the end of the decade, three children, a large uh, mortgaged farmhouse in Oxfordshire, and uh, and all the, the the attendant expenses was to uh, do journalism and then and then do television because by doing television I was able to increase the sales of my books by a factor of roughly ten mm. maybe more and uh, and get myself the breathing space I needed I I have been propelled by financial worries for that's a part of 20 years i always identify with uh 19th century writers like walter scott who was who was prolific partly because of intense financial anxieties uh and i i i can relate to that i i think dr johnson had it right when he said that a man is a blockhead who writes other than for money when people started blogging uh, which goes back now to the early 2000s, people like my good friend Andrew Sullivan, I, I told them they, they were insane because you were writing for free, and I refuse to do that. I don't write for free. One has to kind of um, recognise the, 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 the tradition of, of, of Grub Street, the tradition that writing is a kind of trade it's it's not something only open to uh, wealthy men and women of letters with unearned incomes. It's also it's a trade you can ply as a a commoner, uh, and as long as you're prepared to work hard at it and do your daily thousand words, uh, you can make a living. It's getting harder because there's so much. Uh, so many people writing for free now uh, that a career as a writer is becoming more and more difficult. But uh, at least for my generation, who were graduating from university in the, in the 1980s, it was possible to be a professional writer, writing books and articles and then television scripts, and to make a decent living. And kind of turning that question maybe at 90 degrees, has, has money been a theme that has sort of run through the content of your work? I mean, you describe yourself as a financial historian, you've written about the Rothschilds. Has that been a kind of vein that you've been picking at in the subject matter that you've approached with your books? Oh, definitely. The, the reason for that is intellectual, though. As, a, as an undergraduate at Magdalen Oxford, I was persuaded by Gerald Harris, in particular, the great medievalist, that until you understood public finance, you understood nothing about a political system. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about how public finance could illuminate political problems in the past. A lot of my early work was concerned with the public finance of the European great powers in the run-up to the First World War, and indeed during and after it. That work is best known in the context of the book The Pity of War, but it was also published in various academic articles. So 
there was that. And then secondly, my mentor as a graduate student, Norman Stone, encouraged me to think that I had an advantage. I'm relatively numerate. Maybe that was just a benefit of the Scottish system. Compared with most historians, I took mathematics further and therefore had no problem dealing with relatively difficult phenomena in economic history, such as hyperinflation. Norman persuaded me not to write my doctoral dissertation on satirical literature in fin de siècle Vienna, which was plan A, but instead to write it about the German hyperinflation of 1923, which was very much plan B. When I got into that subject, I realized that I found it stimulating in that much of, of modern historiography is written by people who are financially quite ignorant, and they tend to miss the significance of public debt markets, bond markets, and banks. You couldn't miss that if you were studying the Weimar Republic, because they played a, a critical role, both economic and political. So from the early stage in my career, I was interested in public finance, but also interested in private sector finance, in banks and, and bond markets. And when I finished my doctoral dissertation, which dealt quite thoroughly with the role played by banks like the, the Warburg, the Warburg Bank in the, in the 1920s, I was ready to write another book in that terrain. And when George Weidenfeld, the late lamented, publisher suggested that I might write the history of the Rothschilds. I was, I was more or less equipped to do that difficult task and enthused by it because here in the Rothschild archives in, in London, as well as in other places was a completely different view of the world from the one that you got in, in national archives, in government archives, from the vantage point of the Rothschild banks, everything, looked different from the French Revolution to the First World War because they saw it through a prism of, of financial interest as much as uh, anything else. And that that I found exciting. I, I think that book, or rather the two books, because it was published as two volumes in the United States, I think that book on the Rothschilds is a very important work of scholarship that shows 19th century history in particular from a very new vantage point. That then led to my preoccupation with financial history in the run-up to the financial crisis of 2008. I had a good instinct that there was going to be a financial crisis and began writing The Ascent of Money as a financial history for the lay reader a couple of years before the crisis struck. That's, I think, still my best-selling book, and with good reason, because when the crisis struck, there was a book that explained to you where did it all come from? And if you were somebody who'd never thought for a minute about bank balance sheets or stock market bubbles or the bond market, the ascent of money allowed you to understand those things, not with some boring uh, economic model or tedious flowchart, but, but by, by telling stories and telling, telling you where these things all came from. As well as sort of um, telling new stories, you've also gone back over, um, you've delighted in going back over fairly well-trodden ground to give um, revisionist uh, views, you know, particularly in um, The Pity of War, for example. Is that something that um, sort of comes from your academic background or is it sort of um, a reaction against 
um, the academic world? I think if you're teaching, especially if you're teaching in the tutorial system, you're bound to get frustrated by the conventional wisdom because it's being regurgitated to you by nine out of ten students. Methodologically, a serious scholar of the past should always begin by reading what's been written before on any given subject. Once you've ploughed through that existing literature, whether it's on the First World War or the Second World War or the Cold War, you will know what the conventional wisdom is. You will know what the big debates are. You will know what the consensus view is. And if you agree with it, if you are satisfied with what you've read, then don't write another book about it. Do something else. I'm never satisfied with the conventional wisdom. I'm always acutely conscious by the time I've done my reading that there are gaping holes in the consensus view or that the debates have missed something vital. And that's when I start to write. Is it in the classic tutorial, you're, you're engaged in a Socratic dialogue. Undergraduate A says B, C, and D, and you say R, but X, Y, and Z. And in constant debates with students over more than a decade of Oxbridge teaching, I kept coming to, I suppose, contrarian views to try to teach well so that they would be challenged, even if they read all the literature and come to the right conclusion. I would, my job was to say, but, ah, but maybe this consensus that you've so brilliantly synthesized is wrong. What if Britain had not intervened in 1914? And that was when I realised that counterfactual questions were very powerful heuristic tools. That led not only to the pity of war, but to the collection of essays, virtual history. Is there an issue of, of just volume with, with source material here? And I was looking recently at uh, the book The Sleepwalkers, I think by Christopher Clarke, about how Europe went to war in 1914. And he has a note on sources with that and just talks about the, you know, the, his point saying it would be impossible to read in one lifetime the secondary literature looking at the outbreak of war in 1914. I mean, how do you, how do you go about choosing when there's such an enormous volume of material where you want to be making your inquiries? And I suppose the other element of that is was with, with some of your stuff that's more, you're looking at a more recent period, do you, do you do interviews as well as archival research? Well, on the first question, you must remember that a large proportion of any historiography is of very little value. It's what R.G. Collingwood called scissors and paste history. It's just basically copied from other books. And there's, in any literature, in any historiography, there's the stuff you really have to read. And then there's the stuff that is essentially of, of disposable quality. And what I often do is make sure that I'm reading the key stuff, the really properly researched stuff, and then I'll have a researcher look at the cut and paste, scissors and paste stuff to see if there's anything there. And sometimes there is. It's a bit like panning for gold. There's, there's all this dross, but sometimes you find some nuggets. But that that's, a, I think, a key point that not many people grasp. Another way of thinking about this is the uh, the ratio that I like to talk about, the ratio of pages read to pages written. Uh, in many books, that ratio is close to unity, if not below it, because there's actually very little research going on. You can tell when you look in the bibliography or the footnotes. Um, and so you shouldn't waste too much time on on books that are based on a, 
a ratio of roughly unity, you'd need to look for the books that have been deeply researched, like Chris Clark's, uh, Clark's book, The Sleepwalkers, which is a tremendous work of scholarship. One of the few books published since the Pity of War that really, I thought, added to the, the literature. Whereas a lot of the books published, even over 20 years, add remarkably little, either because they're not deeply researched or because they just say something utterly obvious that we kind of already knew. This is what um, Norman Stone used to call so what history. You read these great dissertations and monographs and at the end of it all, you've just been reassured that what you already knew was correct and it was something pretty obvious anyway. Second point, interviews. Yes, if you're working on the recent past and there are living uh, participants who witnessed the events at first hand, you should talk to them. Of course, you should remember that they'll tell you a version of events highly favorable to themselves, even if they don't quite mean to, because that's the way our brains work. We filter out bad stuff, and we also create a, a just-so story about what happened. So you interview, but, but you must regard the interviews as being subordinate to the, the primary sources in the archives. The documents written at the time are more reliable than the memories of, of people many years after the events. Of course, the documents aren't perfect, and the memories will sometimes help you fill in gaps that the archives uh, suffer from, but that, that's, broadly speaking, the ranking that you should give those sources. And I've spent many, many hours interviewing people for a number of books, including the Kissinger biography. I find the, the process a fascinating one. But if, I, if I'm honest, looking at volume one of Kissinger, the percentage of material, source material, that that book uses from interviews is in the low single digits. Something that um, comes out strongly in uh, your, your book, uh, War of the World, is that there are sort of lessons that we should be uh, learning from um, the 20th century, an era of sort of organised, you know, mass murder and, and various other things. What is your kind of um, opinion on the, the tenor of current debate and the availability of kind of um, uh, counter voices and counter narratives um, to the mainstream? I the whole point of studying the past is to understand the present better and get a sense of plausible futures. I'm a devoted follower of R.G. Collingwood, the great uh, mid-20th century philosopher of history at Oxford, whose autobiography all historians should read. In it, in it Collingwood argues very coherently for our endeavouring to learn lessons from the past. This view went out of fashion in the in the later 20th century when I came up to Oxford in, I think, 1982. So Michael Howard, who was then Regis Professor, told us almost on day one that there were no lessons to be learned from history. Alan Taylor had said at around that same time, men only learn from history how to make new mistakes. And we were essentially told, don't even go there, only crude journalists now think about lessons of history. I always felt this was a bit odd, and that to come to Oxford to study history 
in the spirit of antiquarianism, i.e., we study the past because it's just so interesting, was a bit a bit futile. I wanted to study the past to learn lessons, and I've done that more or less explicitly in every book I've written. The War of the World asks a good question, I think. Why was the 20th century so violent in some places and at some times? Because the violence wasn't geographically or chronologically evenly spread. A lot of it happened in a very few places. And that, that leads to the answer, well, places like Central and Eastern Europe suffered from ethnic disintegration, economic volatility, and empires in decline. Therefore, if you want to see where there's likely to be trouble in the 21st century, look for places where those three things are going on. At the end of the book, I say, well, don't expect much trouble from Central and Eastern Europe because those processes aren't likely to happen again. But do expect trouble in the Middle East because those processes are in full swing. And I don't think that argument has done too badly since I, I made it. And with uh, going back a bit to the, the Empire book, what was... Well, could you talk a bit more about the experience of doing that and then also the experience after it had been published, the, the debate that, that it engaged with or in some ways precipitated, and if you, how you think that might play if it happened today, for example, rather than at the time it was published? The reason for doing that, apart from financial pressure, was that when the idea was put forward, I was thinking lots about globalisation in history. There was quite an interesting economics literature on globalization then. And I said to the Channel 4 people, look, I'll do this, but I'm not doing it with plumed helmets and, and Elgar music. I'm, I'm going to do this as a history of globalization, and I'm going to show that many aspects of the modern world are, are direct consequences of the British Empire. And they said, okay, that sounds more Channel 4 than we were expecting. Great. So I then worked with a terrific group of directors uh, and producers to make those six films. Each component of the, of the series was making part of this argument about, about globalization in its, in its first iteration, showing that the empire had done dreadful things, but it had also had profound consequences for global economic integration, many of which were benign. So that was the basic theme of the series, and the book closely followed that argument, though it went into more detail. The experience of making the series was life-changing. I think I, I was fundamentally changed as a human being by leaving the libraries and and archives and, and leaving behind the, the Oxbridge bubble and going to places like Sierra Leone and the Northern Cape and South Africa and parts of India that tourists never go to like Lucknow. And I came back quite changed by that, convinced that historians need to do what Richard Cobb called the research of the foot, research that takes you out of the library into, into the world. I was excited by it. Um, turned upside down by it. But it was a tremendous experience. And then what you refer to as the debate happened, except it wasn't a debate. Because in a debate, the other side uh, reads your book and engages with it. 
and you discuss your interpretation of the data. What happened in the aftermath of empire was a non-debate in which people on the left in the academia and in the media uh, attacked the book without reading it. They didn't read it at all. They just assumed that the book must be a defense of British colonialism and that I must therefore be some Colonel Blimp figure wishing that the empire could be restored, which was a complete misrepresentation of the book. The, 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 for me, the pressing thing was the realization that an entire generation of, of academics who claimed to be students of empire were not serious scholars at all. They were just engaged in political posturing. And so what happened was intensely disappointing. Nobody really engaged, or very few people engaged with the economic argument, the costs and benefits argument that I made. And they simply engaged in, in finger-pointing ad hominem arguments. And the result was an intellectual fiasco. That there has been almost no serious discussion of the costs and benefits of empire in the wake of the publication of the book. None of the reviews, I thought, properly engaged with the argument of the book. One Guardian columnist who'd slagged it off had the good grace to admit in a blog post he actually had not read the book when he wrote that piece. But very few people were so honest about their dishonesty. And now we have a kind of rerun of this process in the... Uh, in the case of the uh, American academic who, who published a, an article on the costs and benefits of empire, arguing that there were meaningful benefits, he published that article in a, in a scholarly journal and immediately came under the same kind of attack that I came under. And I find it scandalous that there can't be a serious debate about these issues, that all one, one ends up with is, is name-calling it's, it's an extraordinarily bad reflection on the state of the historical profession. But there it is. I mean, I think if, if, if I hadn't written Empire, that they, they'd have had to invent it so that they could have something to, to misrepresent. And do you see that, that kind of very inflammatory situation, both in the academy and in the kind of the tenor of debate in public, often through social media? Do you see how do you see that going forward? I mean, are you wearing your historian's hat? Are we going to return to a place of greater civility, or do you think it's, it's going to continue being a very fractious public sphere? It's clearly got worse. If I'd published that book last year, as opposed to in 2003 or whenever it was, it would be intolerable. There'd probably be baying hordes of social justice warriors outside my office window as we speak. Uh, and it's got worse mainly, I think, because of ways the internet developed that hadn't really been foreseen. Nobody back in the days of the dot-com bubble foresaw the emergence of social media platforms uh, such as Facebook and Twitter where there would be a completely uh, un restrained, uncivil 
form of, of public discussion. What I worry about is that there's no obvious reason for that process of polarization and uh, loss of civility to stop. In fact, there's every reason to expect it to get worse. I think you see the consequences on university campuses on both sides of the Atlantic as a generation, the millennials, take less and less uh, time to familiarize themselves with arguments or positions they find ex-ante objectionable. So free speech is itself under attack. I was even accused recently of weaponizing free speech by inviting a speaker to the Stanford campus that the social justice warriors took exception to. They'd clearly never read, read any of his work. So I think it's pretty depressing and, and the outlook is bleak. Anybody who wants to go into the public sphere today with an argument that is outside the progressive liberal consensus can expect to be flayed alive metaphorically in social media. And you need to have a very stern disposition, not just a, a thick skin, but a cool temperament to cope with you are confronted by, which is ad hominem attack. The characteristic feature of today's discourse is that you are attacked personally. Your argument is ignored. It's not engaged with. You're just accused of bad faith. You're accused of racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, arachnophobia, you name it. But you're not actually engaged with on the terms of, of your argument. I think that's, that's worrying because it, it must deter any young uh, thinker who would like to, to write and, and publish from stepping outside the bounds of what is politically correct. We, we are, I think, in, in danger of, of producing a self-censoring generation of, of writers who who write out of fear in ways that conform with a progressive consensus they, they dare not challenge. A very um, bleak uh, note to end on, but thank you so much for your for your time um, and for, for talking with us for, for so much for such a long time and over such a, a, a great vast range of, of subjects yeah this was really fascinating thanks thanks very much indeed well i'm sorry to end on a bleak note but uh <laughs> i don't want your listeners to have any illusions about the predicament we're in it it makes me nostalgic for the time when my career began for the time in the early 80s when as an undergraduate it was possible for me to espouse uh support for the thatcher government meet with conservative uh, uh academics and and do so with without fear of being publicly assassinated uh without fear of having one's reputation uh, destroyed it's it's very sad that these um these pathologies of the public sphere have become uh so serious it's very hard to see how they can easily be cured i just hope that there are younger scholars willing to, to take the chance 
because truth is more important than than fear and one must put one's fear aside and write what one believes to be true come what may hello it's us again with an update from our lives cassia what have you been up to uh, I'm currently um, trying to sort of channel um, glaciers and ice cubes and um, snow because we're in my shed and it is blisteringly, <laughs> blisteringly hot. And this is a reflection of, of how I've been trying to write over the last few days, which is uh, it's sticky and, and unpleasant. Um, but what have I been doing? I've been kind of working on the kind of final bits and, and, and design pieces of um, my paperback of The Secret Lives of Colour, which is coming out in September, and um, of The Golden Thread, which is coming out in October, which is very exciting. And um, I've also been watching lots of, of Love Island. Very exciting. Um, <laughs> in terms of me, I have been... Also watching Love Island? Uh, I have seen a few snippets of Love Island sure. and of the global football competition. Um, I have been doing some work on my book, another slightly fraught conversation with my editor about length. Um, that's mostly it. How many, how many times over was this one? We're not even talking about this on it, it's too <laughs> um, But the other, the other news is uh, our, pod, our crowdfunding campaign for the podcast continues. Uh, we're uh, doing well, but we'd obviously love it if you chipped in, uh, which you can do at patreon.com slash always take notes. Uh, if you do so, you receive a exciting sheath of rewards. Anyway, this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Cassie Sinclair. Our producers are Ed Kiernan, Liz Davies and Olivia Krellin. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our social media is looked after by Zara Hankier. And James Edgar is responsible for our graphic design. You can find us on all manner of social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. You can find us on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our crowdfunding campaign is patreon.com slash always take notes. <clears throat> Website. Website is uh, always take notes.com. Uh, thank you very much. And thank we you, also Cassia. hope that we'll, uh, you'll find us on iTunes and leave us a review, which greatly helps. <laughs>